Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello. Thank you for joining us for the Friday, October 27th, 2023 reading of the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker. On today's program, Strep Throat, the final infectious disease in the article, Am I Still Contagious?, continued from last week. This is from the New York Times. And red meat linked to risk of type 2 diabetes, study finds, from CNN. Plus, you won't believe the nutrients packed into this fruit. It's bananas, from USA Today. And more, time permitting. Here's our first report. Am I still contagious? Last week, we read about how to navigate eight of the most insidious and infectious diseases. We only got to seven, so today is the final infectious disease, strep throat. This is by Dana G. Smith from the New York Times. Strep throat. Very sore throat, maybe fever, no longer contagious 24 hours after starting antibiotics. Strep throat is the odd one out in this list of diseases because it's caused by a bacteria, Group A Streptococcus. Close to 100 strains of Group A Streptococcus exist, and they can result in several diseases, including scarlet fever, rheumatic fever, and skin infections. But strep throat is the most common. Symptoms. The characteristic symptom of strep throat is, of course, a very sore throat. You might also see a white film in the back of the infected person's throat. Some people develop a fever, too. Many infections can cause a sore throat. What distinguishes strep throat is that it isn't accompanied by other common respiratory symptoms, like a runny nose or cough. The only way to know for certain if you have it is to be tested by a doctor using a throat swab. How it's spread. Strep throat is transmitted through close personal contact with an infected person, primarily in the form of respiratory droplets. That means what's coming out of their nose and mouth goes into yours. Strep throat doesn't appear to spread very well via objects. One study conducted in the 1950s among military recruits found that people who used blankets contaminated with streptococcus bacteria were no more likely to develop strep throat than those who received clean blankets. The inanimate environment plays a minor role in the transmission of Group A strep, said Dr. William Schaffner, a professor of preventive medicine at the Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. It's all close personal contact, he said. It typically takes about 48 hours after an exposure until symptoms develop. How it's treated. If you think that you have strep throat, get tested immediately because the disease can be treated quickly and easily with antibiotics like penicillin or amoxicillin. Pretty much every patient who is diagnosed with strep throat should be treated with a course of antibiotics, said Dr. Stanford Schulman, an emeritus professor of pediatrics at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. How long you're contagious. Once antibiotics are started, the bacteria die off quickly, and within roughly 24 hours, the person is no longer contagious. As a result, the experts say that children can go back to school a day after they begin medication. They might still have a mild sore throat, but there is no risk to others. Most kids can return to school within that next 12 to 24 hours as long as they're otherwise doing well. 
fever-free, eating and drinking okay, said Dr. Lori Handy, an infectious disease physician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Words of warning. In addition to reducing the risk of transmission, it's also critical to treat strep throat because the bacteria can cause other, more severe infections. Those include skin infections known as cellulitis and impetigo, as well as scarlet fever and rheumatic fever where the immune system starts attacking the heart valve. In the most severe and rare cases, streptococcus bacteria can cause a blood infection, bone infection, septic shock, or necrotizing fasciitis, a flesh-eating infection. It's important to know about these more severe manifestations not to scare patients, Dr. Handy said, but to make sure they get their children treated and, if symptoms worsen, they get medical attention quickly. Up next, red meat linked to risk of type 2 diabetes, study finds, by Kristen Rogers from CNN. A large new study by Harvard researchers suggests having just two servings of red meat per week increases risk for developing type 2 diabetes later in life, and the risk further increases with greater consumption, according to the study published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. The association between red meat and type 2 diabetes has been observed in different populations worldwide, said the study's first author, Zhao Gu, a postdoctoral research fellow of nutrition at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, via email. We keep strengthening existing evidence with improved data and techniques. I hope our study could settle the debate regarding whether we should limit red meat intake for health concerns or not. About 462 million people worldwide are affected by type 2 diabetes, a rate that has been rapidly increasing, the authors said. Prevention of diabetes is important because this disease itself is a serious burden, and it also is a major risk factor for cardiovascular and kidney disease, cancer, and dementia, Gu said. Consumption of red meat has been linked with type 2 diabetes risk in past studies, but the authors of the latest research wanted to improve upon them by adding details about how diabetes diagnoses and related biomarkers were affected by intake over a long period of time. The authors studied more than 216,000 people who had participated in the Nurses Health Study, the Nurses Health Study 2, and the Health Professionals Follow-Up Study all of which recruited participants from around 1976 to 1989. The first two studies investigated risk factors for major chronic diseases among female registered nurses in North America, while the latter study assessed the same topics but for men. Participants, most of whom were white, were aged 46 on average at the beginning of the NHS, 36 when NHS 2 began, and 53 when the HPFS was initiated. All were followed up with through no later than 2017. Participants reported their health status every other year via questionnaire, and their food intake was also measured every two to four years with questionnaires that asked them to report their average intake of different foods and beverages over the past year. By the end of the follow-up periods, nearly 22,800 people developed type 2 diabetes, and those who ate the most total red meat had a 62% higher risk of developing the disease compared with people who ate the least. 
eating the most processed or unprocessed red meat was linked with a 51% and 40% higher risk of type 2 diabetes, respectively. Processed meat, the authors defined, included sausage, beef or pork hot dogs, bacon, processed meat sandwiches, one serving equaled 28 grams of bacon or 45 grams of the other meats. Unprocessed meat included lean or extra lean hamburger, regular hamburger, beef, pork, or lamb as a sandwich or a mixed dish, and pork, beef, or lamb as a main dish. 85 grams of pork, beef, or lamb constituted one serving of unprocessed meat. The results of this study, which was extremely comprehensive, confirmed current dietary guidance to limit red meat intake, said Alice Lichtenstein, Gershoff Professor of Nutrition Science and Policy and Tufts University in Boston. Lichtenstein was not involved in the study. Additionally, swapping a meat serving for nuts or legumes meant a 30% reduction in risk for developing type 2 diabetes, while opting for dairy instead reduced the odds by 22%. Of note, individuals who reported consuming red meat most frequently within each cohort were more likely to eat less fish or fruit and more calories, way more, and engage in less physical activity, added Lichtenstein, who is also the director of Tufts University's Cardiovascular Nutrition Laboratory. This suggests they had poorer overall diet quality and were less likely to engage in healthy lifestyle behaviors. The study doesn't prove that eating red meat causes type 2 diabetes, said Gunter Kunli, a professor of nutrition and food science at the University of Reading in the U.K., he was not involved in the study. But multiple biological factors could have affected the relationship between red meat and type 2 diabetes, the authors said. For one, saturated fat, which is high in red meat, has been found to reduce insulin sensitivity and functioning of the beta cells in the pancreas, which produce insulin in a regulated manner to manage blood glucose. Additionally, heme iron, the type of iron found in animal foods, can increase insulin resistance, impairment of beta cell functioning, and oxidative stress, the imbalance of free radicals and antioxidants in the body. Free radicals, unstable molecules from environmental sources such as cigarette smoke or pesticides, can harm the body's cells. Elevated use of the amino acid glycine, which naturally occurs in most proteins, has also been observed after red meat intake and is associated with diabetes risk, the authors said. Excess body fat is another risk factor for diabetes, and red meat consumption was one of the dietary factors with the largest association with weight gain, according to the study. Limiting your red meat intake can be done by reducing frequency or portion size, and a combination of both habit changes is best, Lichtenstein said. Consistently reported, dairy, legumes, and nuts are the best foods with which to replace the red meat, she added. For the former, given the concern about saturated fat and beta cell function, I would recommend fat-free and low-fat products, she said. Given the findings, limiting red meat consumption to about one serving per week would be reasonable for people wishing to optimize their health and well-being, said senior study author Dr. Walter C. Willett, professor of epidemiology and nutrition at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Choosing plant-based sources of protein would also help reduce greenhouse gas emissions and climate change, Gu said, along with other environmental benefits. 
Up next, you won't believe the nutrients packed into this fruit. It's bananas by Delaney Nothaft from USA Today. Cue up Hollaback Girl by Gwen Stefani, the radio version, of course. B-A-N-A-N-A-S. The rhythm and energy of this song may match the excitement some feel for this beloved fruit. People around the globe go bananas for, well, bananas. Most people are familiar with the sweet flavor and soft texture of the banana, but some may wonder about its nutritional value, like its upsides, its downsides, and if we can actually eat them every day. We connected with Kara Bernstein, MSRD, LDN, CDCES, Registered Nutritionist and Certified Diabetes Educator at Pritikin Longevity Center to find out everything you need to know about bananas. What are the three benefits of eating a banana? Although bananas have many benefits, there are three main nutritional benefits that we want to focus on. Bananas contain vital nutrients that help with the functioning of many things in our bodies, Bernstein says. Bananas are packed with essential nutrients like potassium, vitamin C, vitamin B6, dietary fiber, and magnesium, she says. Bananas can give you immediate and sustained energy. That is why bananas are a favorite among athletes, Bernstein explains. The natural sugars in bananas, including fructose, glucose, and sucrose, provide a quick and sustained energy boost, making them a great snack option, she says. Bananas can help support heart and gut health because of their potassium and fiber contents. The potassium content in bananas supports heart health by helping to maintain healthy blood pressure levels, explains Bernstein. She adds, bananas contain dietary fiber, which aids in maintaining regular bowel movements and promoting a healthy digestive system. Are there any drawbacks to eating a banana? The main drawback of bananas is the sugar content. Even though it is natural, too much sugar can lead to issues, particularly if you're a diabetic or if you have weight loss goals. Bernstein explains, all fruits are not created equal in terms of calories and sugar content. Although the sugar content in fruit is natural and preferred, bananas have a higher cost in terms of calories and sugar content than some other fruits, for example, berries. She adds, those with digestive disorders may have trouble digesting the sugars in the banana, and they can cause some GI distress. It's a good idea to eat the banana before it gets all spotted like a leopard. The more spotted, the more ripened the banana becomes and increases the sugar content of the banana. Is it okay to eat bananas every day? Bernstein says the short answer is yes. However, she urges you to think about some of the caveats. Keep the portions small, have them with fibrous foods like vegetables, and or pair them with a healthy protein or plant-based fat to increase satiety and dilute sugar concentration, she says. She gives some examples of what she does at her practice. Some great pairings would be Greek yogurt with a banana or a handful of nuts with a banana, she says. Additionally, the American Heart Association recommends don't go bananas, but maybe eat one. They concurred that bananas have lots of wonderful nutrients, but that some people need to worry about the sugar or potassium content, particularly if you have kidney or heart disease. Up next, is pumpkin good for you? It's the quintessential flavor of fall. It also has big benefits for your health. 
by Alice Callahan from the New York Times. This is from the column Ask Well, and so it's in Q&A format. The question, pumpkins are everywhere in the fall, but are they good for me? Answer, pumpkins are more than a seasonal decoration or flavoring for lattes. They have a long history as a versatile and vital source of nutrition, said Danae Becks, a dietitian and diabetes care and education specialist in Farmington, New Mexico. The pumpkin, which is a type of squash, is native to the Americas and was farmed by indigenous communities long before the arrival of Europeans, Ms. Becks, who is Navajo, said. And there are big benefits to their lasting popularity, she added. They are packed with nutrients like vitamins, minerals, and fiber. Why pumpkin is so good for you? Pumpkin is what nutrition experts call a nutrient-dense food, meaning it packs a big nutritional punch in exchange for relatively few calories, said Rachel Kopeck, an associate professor of human nutrition at Ohio State University. One cup of canned pumpkin, for example, contains 137 calories, but provides more than 200% of the daily value for vitamin A, 36% of vitamin K, 25% of fiber, and 22% of vitamin E. It's also a good source of vitamin B6, vitamin C, magnesium, riboflavin, iron, and potassium. Vitamin A in pumpkin comes from plant pigments, called carotenoids, which give pumpkin its golden color and can be converted by the body into vitamin A, Dr. Kopeck said. Vitamin A is vital for vision, pregnancy, skin health, and immune function, the last of which is especially important as we head into the colder months, she said. A carotenoid in pumpkin called beta-carotene, as well as vitamins C and E, can also act as antioxidants and can help protect the skin from damage from UV rays and pollution, said Amanda Lynette, a dietitian specializing in gastroenterology at Michigan Medicine. One cup of canned pumpkin puree, which is typically made from a pumpkin variety that is similar to butternut squash, contains about 7 grams of fiber, a nutrient that most people in the United States could benefit from eating more of. Fiber can help you feel full and satisfied, can regulate your blood sugar and cholesterol levels, and can support a healthy gut microbiome, Ms. Lynette said. The types of fiber in pumpkin can also help those who suffer from diarrhea or constipation by absorbing water and helping stool to move along inside the colon, Ms. Lynette added. And pumpkin is a little gentler on the digestive tract than other types of high-fiber foods like kale or beans, she said, which have more roughage and can be a bit harder to digest. Pumpkin's potassium levels are also worth highlighting, Ms. Lynette said. Research suggests that consuming more potassium may lower your blood pressure, improve your bone health, and decrease your risk of stroke and kidney stones. And don't forget the seeds, which are edible and also contain valuable nutrients, Ms. Becks said. Whether shelled or unshelled, pumpkin seeds are a good source of protein, fiber, healthy fats, iron, magnesium, and zinc. A half cup of shelled pumpkin seeds also called pepitas, contains 21 grams of protein and 4.5 grams of fiber, for example. How to eat more pumpkin. Canned pumpkin is just as nutritious as puree made from scratch, and it's much easier and more convenient, Ms. Lynette said. 
Just be sure to buy plain pumpkin puree and not pumpkin pie filling, which can have added sugar and sodium and may not provide as much fiber, she added. Ms. Lynette likes to add a scoop of pumpkin puree to oatmeal or plain yogurt and then top it with a sprinkle of cinnamon and a little drizzle of maple syrup, she said. Beyond seasonal classics like pumpkin bread and pumpkin pie, you can also use canned pumpkin for hearty, savory dishes, Ms. Lynette said, like chilies, soups, curries, enchiladas, and pastas. The large pumpkins sold for jack-o'-lanterns and seasonal decor aren't great for eating, Ms. Lynette said, though you can scoop out the seeds, toss them with seasoning, and roast them for a savory or sweet snack. If you want to cook pumpkin from scratch, look for small pie pumpkins in your grocery store or consider visiting a local farm, Ms. Bex said, maybe even one that is native-owned if there are some nearby which may grow a larger and more unique variety of pumpkins and winter squashes. Ms. Bex celebrates pumpkins year-round and grows them herself. As a child, she ate pumpkin at her grandmother's house. Her grandmother would roast it in the oven, and she would scoop it right out of the shell with a spoon, still one of her favorite ways to enjoy pumpkin. Up next, things you need for an ergonomically correct workstation. An ergonomic workstation, one that supports your body in a neutral position, will help you sit comfortably at a computer even over long stints. Here's what you need for an optimal workspace by Melanie Panola from The New York Times. A comfortable chair that supports your spine. The best office chairs support the natural S-curve of your back. If you spend hours at your desk, consider investing in a great office chair with optional adjustable lumbar support. The Steelcase Gesture Chair is adjustable to fit a variety of body types and has adjustable lumbar support. A desk set at the proper height for using your keyboard. An adjustable height standing desk offers the best fit because you can raise or lower the desk height in one-tenth of an inch increments and you can easily switch between sitting and standing at regular intervals throughout the day. An external ergonomic keyboard. Most keyboards force your hands inward so your shoulders are hunched. An ergonomic keyboard is one that either has a low flat profile or that tilts forward to keep your wrists in a neutral position. A mouse that fits your hand. Using repetitive motions on your laptop's touchpad or a standard mouse can stress muscles in your fingers and wrists in the same way that repetitive typing can cause fatigue or pain. Look for a mouse that's comfortable to grip and moves smoothly. A display set at a comfortable height. Place your display so your eye level is at the top of the monitor or an inch or two below it and an arm's length away. Raise your laptop or monitor as needed with about anything flat and wide, like a stack of books. For more sturdiness and control over your display's height, consider a laptop stand. Good lighting. Natural lighting in the workspace is ideal because it can boost your energy and sense of well-being while reducing eye strain. If you don't have windows in your home office, combine overhead lighting with task lighting. Up next low-dose aspirin, and anemia risk from Consumer Reports on Health. Taking daily low-dose aspirin can reduce heart risks for some people, but in a study of 18,153 people ages 65 and older, it increased the likelihood of anemia by 20%. 
The researchers say older adults should take aspirin only as their doctor recommends, and those who do should be monitored for anemia. And the source is the Annals of Internal Medicine. And have diabetes? Why eye care is essential. 28% of Americans between ages 65 and 79 with diabetes also have diabetic retinopathy, according to a recent study. These numbers are nearly double previous estimates. Half of people with the advanced form of the condition, where eye blood vessels leak fluid, lose vision within five years. You can control and even prevent this vision damage with regular dilated eye exams, treatment as needed, and good blood sugar control, the researchers say. And the source is JAMA Ophthalmology. Thank you for joining us for the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.